Hello, welcome back to Why Did Peter Sink? This is the Age of Costanza Part 2, the food and sex episode. Um, so let's start. I always wondered why monks put fasting so high on the list of things to do, and St. Benedict, who saved civilization from returning to uh, complete debauchery, had specific rules for his monastery about food. And it was known that the monk who could not be disciplined on food would fall to pieces on virtue. And I can confirm this. Uh, having grown up on Kool-Aid and Little, Little Debbie and loving every sugar-addicted minute of it, the era of cheap food has created a constant feast. The elderly people who grew up in the Depression understood food far better than the baby boomer children and Gen X and all the way to whatever we are now, Z, um, and certainly understood it better than those of us who, in our post-Kool-Aid college era could pound cheap cases of natural light natty light and wash it down with uh, taco bell nacho bell grande at 4 a.m and lest anyone feel i lean too far right let me remind you that i lived caught somewhere between hippie and redneck and the hippies and tree huggers were right about fast food and fertilizer uh, but they missed the second part so while pointing a finger at food and greed they actually accepted the moral decay as a kind of progress, this march of progress. And so let's, let me keep going here. Here's my theory on Genesis as a mirror of the green revolution and the sexual revolution, both of things which happened in America in the 20th century. Um, no fault divorce was caused by refrigeration. This is, this is me expanding on my thesis from the last one. Um, nitrogen fertilizer led to mass scale abortion. The combine harvester led to the current transgender fad. In short, just as food led to the fall in the garden, so did the food security of the last 70, 100 years lead to the rejection of God all over again. So as far as the Green Revolution, I referred to it in the last episode, but in Iowa, a, na a man named Norman Borlaug is praised for feeding a billion people with his scientific agriculture management principles. But in producing massive yields and cheap food, we ate from the tree of knowledge once again and made the same mistake. There's a reason that the fall in Genesis starts with food, uh, the temptation of food. Taking food for granted leads to sin and lots of it. Food and sex are very intertwined, just like George Costanza was illustrating. So notice, please, if you will, that the story in Genesis 3 of eating is followed by an obvious sexual fall where they know their nakedness. So this is verses four through seven in that chapter three. The serpent said to the woman, when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired and make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband and he ate. And then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. Okay, so stop right there. Did you hear how the food was eaten in this secure food paradise called the Garden of Eden? It was eaten without God. Uh, Adam and Eve rejected God. Neither of them paused to say grace before eating the fig or the apple, as we say. It was obviously a fig because they're, they're wearing fig leaves like in the very next scene. No, they, they ate just like we do today, actually. Like when we go to Culver's or Applebee's or McDonald's, uh, we just dive right in because the food is taken for granted. You rarely, rarely see people doing a prayer before a meal. Occasionally, you see some weird family praying in public, but it's rare. And right after Adam and Eve 
pig out on the fruit, they are naked and they're uh, suddenly like porning up the whole world. They are George Costanza. Um, how we think about food matters immensely in the moral life, and it's no wonder that the mass rejection of God parallels the obvious fact that no one pauses to say a prayer before eating today. And as I fell away, I fell into the free beer and fast food. The age of Costanza swallowed me like the sea beast did Jonah, except I was in the belly for far more than three days. I was barfed out about 15 years later. So um, notice, if you would, that this is really important, I think. Um, if that the, the Lord's Prayer hinges in the center on the phrase, give us this day our daily bread. Um, that is a really important line, and it signals that food is important. In fact, food is so important in centering our lives around God that the whole Lord's Prayer links the beginning heavenly things to the latter earthly things. Food is a gift from God, and we should be acknowledging that simple fact as a blessing uh, but we think the food came from our own ingenuity and cleverness, and we just take it for granted. Um, we assume that the chipotle and the mutant-sized fruits at Costco all came from us, forgetting that the soil and water itself came from God. So this is like someone entering a beautiful home and like a mansion, and then they go and hang, they pound in a tiny nail and hang a three-by-five picture on the wall and declaring, I built this house. The fact that we have mucked with some genes and figured out refrigeration and we spread the fertilizer with nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium around the earth um, in no way diminishes the reality that this created world is the foundation, the gift from God from which every calorie we eat springs forth. In other words, we are foodless without God. Um, the great hunger in 1800s, 1800s Ireland was not that long ago. And, you know, for goodness sakes, like, Band-Aid and We Are the World, uh, what, raising money for Ethiopia, was only 40 years ago during that famine. Um, the illusion of food security is strong because anyone alive in America today who remembers the Great Depression is now very likely in a nursing home, and those people tend to say a prayer before they eat, but no one listens to them and very few visit them, so we're not really interested in their story. But a culture flush with food and wealth quickly falls into sin. And I don't know how, but the short and seemingly simple book of Genesis always has another layer to it. But then so does Exodus. Um, here's, here's the prelude to the golden calf. What happens in the prelude to the golden calf? A giant Texas barbecue. That's what. In Exodus 32, when Moses is up on the mountain, he's gone so long, the people are getting worried and freaked out. Um, and apparently they do have uh, food that they can eat. And here's what it says. The people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterwards, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. <laughs> revelry. That's, I think, an understatement for what was going on there. But food and booze are followed shortly thereafter by the most famous orgy in history, the scandal known as the Golden Calf Incident, which makes Watergate or the Clinton-Lewinsky scandal look like a game of go fish. Uh, furthermore, in Exodus, whenever the Israelites start complaining, they want to return to the, quote, flesh pots of Egypt where they were slaves. But you can see how strong food is such that it goes hand in hand with the rejection of God. What the Israelites are pining for is when they were slaves and they sat by these flesh pots and ate bread to the full. Now, I don't really know what a flesh pot is, but I think it's like 
food. It's like Chipotle. It would be a flesh pot would be Chipotle, McDonald's, Culver's, and, um, you know, Perkins, whatever restaurants that you like to go to. Um, just put those in there wherever you see that word. So the more I read the Bible, the more I see how much food and sex come up because why the seemingly odd acts of sacrifice in the Pentateuch and Leviticus make ex- increasing sense to me um, because it was aligning the people's food toward God. Um, there's a book called Welcoming Gifts, Sacrifice in the Bible and Christian Life. There's another book called Jesus and the Jewish Roots of the Eucharist that I linked here. Um, those are great books talking about food, sacrifice, um, and relationship to God. So, and interestingly enough, the Eucharist is means thanksgiving, and it relates to the toda um, type of sacrifice, the thanksgiving sacrifice in Leviticus. Um, it turns out Leviticus is extremely interesting. Um, who would have ever thought that, you know, when we all were just trying to pass by that one and go straight from like Exodus to say David. Um, there's a ton of interesting things in there, but you need a guide and welcoming gifts. That book is a good one. And Jesus and the Jewish Roots of the Eucharist is also an excellent one by Brant Petrie. So um, I think the welcoming gifts was written by Jeremy someone. I'll have to look that up. Um, anyway, somehow a kind of knowledge lies within our food. There's the tree of knowledge in the food. It's related, and it goes specifically with taking food for granted. There's something about being full and having plenty of food that leads to pride and the rejection of God. I think this is why Jesus says that it will be harder for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get to heaven. And why, why do I think that? Because the rich man has plenty of food. He feels fully secure and therefore thinks he can live without God. There's a huge part of food and security and feeling like, well, I, don't, I got this. I don't need God. He assumes he has no weakness because his belly is full and he cannot imagine missing a meal because his bank account is also full. Um, all of this illuminates to me why so many of the saints fasted and why the Beatitudes elevate the poor and why Jesus calls so many of his sheep from places where food security is unlike the American buffet. Those who appreciate food tend to appreciate God because they know that God is the giver of food. Um, Give us this day our daily bread is not a demand. It's a supplication to God and a request made with gratitude. So even today, wealth really means food security. But we have so much food that even those in poverty are overweight and statistics bear this out. Thus, we have reached an odd point where poverty does not mean hunger in many places. That it's great that we have food, except for when it leads to the rejection of God. Uh, so knowledge of good and evil and the idea that we can be like God comes after food abundance. And it should come as no surprise that the modern all-you-can-eat buffet started in Las Vegas in the 1940s in order to keep gamblers at the tables as food and vice were married there in true Vegas style. I think it's so wonderful of a of a uh, thing and i mean horrible wonderful but that the all-you-can-eat buffet started in las vegas where it's just so fitting especially for what i'm i'm talking about here so when we feel full we assume a strength and power that we don't truly possess and feeling strong pride blooms and humility is trampled a fertilizer brought the modern fruit in the garden but the fruit now is fast food cheap food and we have eaten and eaten and eaten, kind of like the hungry little caterpillar. If you've ever read read the children's book, 
the hungry little caterpillar. The only problem is we're not caterpillars. So the more we eat, we don't turn into butterflies. We just become full and look for other things to do like sin, like George Costanza. And sex is the most obvious one. Without food ab abundance, there would have been no Woodstock because there would not have been a large population of idle college students of prime working age who could while away their youthful years on drugs and alcohol. Without food abundance and a sense of security and wealth, the prodigal son never leaves home and, and never goes to squander his money on vice. Um, I speak from experience, despite coming of age long after Woodstock, but in that um, heritage and, you know, many millennia after the story of the prodigal son. The prodigal son is always alive and well, especially in wealthy uh, children who have no fear of um, missing a meal. Let's put it that way. Uh, once we are full, knowledge is the great tantalizing dessert that we desire, and it's always calling to us. It's, it reminds me of the pie in the old diners, you know, that we had Baker Square, Perkins, various other places. They had these um, revolving glass cases with pie spinning around on display like some kind of jewelry near the cash register. Um, the pie sat behind the glass, kind of like forbidden fruit. I remember looking at it as a kid, and we or only ordered this rich pie after already being full. Um, but even when we're full, the appetite continues because we want the pie. Um, there's a there's a meme of a frog who's laying on his side and he says, I'm so full. And then he says, oh, look, pie. I know that feeling. I've lived it. I still live it. Um, yeah, I remember looking at the pie and the, and the cake in those well-lit spinning cases and wondering what what might that pie taste like? Will it will it fulfill me and finish off my meal? What if I could just have a bite? And I don't recall a serpent being there at all. But if a serpent actually means shiny one, as I have read that the translation really means, then I know what the sacred writer of Genesis was referring to, and I can relate it to the shining spinning pie in the glass case. Um, St. Benedict knew something important. He knew that we cannot reach the wisdom through the mouth and the stomach, not the wisdom we're seeking. Um, the kind of knowledge that will satisfy our souls does not come through food, which is why Jesus tells the devil in the wilderness, man cannot live by bread alone. It is not through pie or Kool-Aid or the constipation that accompanies 200 grams of protein a day that we will find the peace and rest we seek. Now, in a bizarre twist, we must pursue a different kind of knowing, sometimes called the cloud of unknowing, famous book, uh, spiritual, mystical kind of book. And it comes not through food, but through self-denial and prayer, which no one wants to hear, but it's true. The cloud of ecstasy, we're told by today's culture, must come by a different kind of relationship, usually sexual or experiential, and we completely forget about food. And if we haven't fallen for the marketing of the sugar mafia, particularly Coca-Cola, then we may fall for the fitness syndicate's promises. And if we are not overeating, then we then go to the other side of food insanity, where we must know the caloric content and nutrients of every morsel that passes over our teeth. Uh, but in both cases, gross abundance of food is present, and giving thanks to God for Oreos or organic food is not around. It's AWOL. No one's giving thanks whether you're eating Oreos or organic food. Yes, I know some people are, but fewer and fewer than ever before. The foodies and the gluttons have one thing in common, and that is a food obsession that is accompanied by the abandonment of God, like most of 
the world. So hence, in our current world of sexual immorality, it's a symptom of a prior fall, just as we really don't see the sexual fall in Genesis until chapter 6 with the infamous Nephilim, which come after the eating in the garden. And the Nephilim is a fascinating thing to talk about, but I'm not going to. Um, one thing is certain. Wealth and abundance lead to the other sins of the body. Um, the, quote, warm sins, as they're sometimes called, like gluttony and lust and um, greed. Those are kind of the warm sins where, like, pride, envy, wrath are the cold sins. But anyway, in my own lifetime, you could watch and observe this mood change about what is and what is not a sin, which almost coincided with the increased portions of food and the more we were taking it for granted. The organic phenomenon is trying to correct the problem, seeing food as the God, um, there, when food is in fact the gift from God. And so every CrossFit and intermittent faster who is not measuring out their food prep with God at the forefront, forefront has missed the point that every uh, this daily bread is a gift. Um, the obese and the buff both miss the purpose if they're not giving praise to God for this food. Um, it's no wonder we don't understand Leviticus because it's almost entirely about food and getting into the right relationship to God via food. So again, those two books, I'll leave the links in here. But we have moved on thinking that food abundance will last forever. And thus we've moved on to ever greater sins, knocking down walls and fences of morality and calling them old-fashioned. Why? Because we think this garden was of our doing and not God's. And I do fear when the, the next famine hits, worldwide famine, when we're so used to these massive, massive yields, um, food everywhere, food abundance, food taken for granted. All right, that wraps up part two. And thank you for listening. I have a third part to this one. And I'll see you on the next episode.